What a joy to be together today, amen? I am stoked to be together. We are continuing our series in Acts. If you guys want to grab your Bibles and turn there, we're going to be uh, in Acts 25 and 26 today. Um, and as you turn there, I want to ask a question and kind of give this as like a framing piece for us today. So, so as we dig through this narrative, as we dig through this story, whether you've been with us through the whole time through Acts, whether this is your first time visiting us, I just want to ask you to kind of hold this question in your head and use it as kind of a, a framework to look at this text and the stories we go through it. And the question is essentially this. What do you want for the world? What do you want for the world around you, the world that exists? And, and by the way, as I ask that, I understand that immediately, like those of you who are church brats, like you already have the Sunday school answer, and you're like, well... I want to love Jesus. I know that's what I'm supposed to say. And, and if that's where you're at, that's cool. But I want, to ask, I, want, I want to ask you to still hold this question in your brain. And there's two reasons for this. The first one is, I think it's really important for you to hear the question, what do you want for the world? Not, not what do you want from the world. Not what do you want out of this life. What do you want for the world within which you find yourself? What do you desire for the people on this planet? And if, like me, you're so trained in, like, church language that immediately you're like, Pastor, that's the world for the world, I know I'm supposed to say Jesus. I want to challenge you with this. This is going to be my argument today. Is that if that is the case, you actually desire Jesus for the world. And that will bear itself out in the way you live your life. That will show itself through your actions, through your choices, through your decisions. Which is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to see this playing out in the life of the Apostle Paul. So I want to ask you, just consider that. Think that. Keep that in the back of your head. We're going to come back to that as we end our time out today. But keep that in your head as we walk through this. So we're going to jump through. It's a longer chunk of narrative. So rather than reading the whole text, I'm going to kind of take us through it bit by bit. We're going to look at a couple specific texts. And I'm really going to focus in on a defense that Paul's going to give himself before King Grab. We'll read that whole piece. But I'm going to kind of take us through the narrative leading up to that point. So pray with me and we'll jump into this. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for a beautiful day, for gorgeous weather that reminds us, even on a day when we didn't get as much sleep, that spring is coming that life is in the air, that you are good, that you take care of your creation. Lord, as we take a few minutes today to be in your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler. You would open up and illuminate your word to us, that you would speak to us. Lord, I ask for each and every one of us in this space today, that we would leave today having heard from you in a way our heart actually needs, being challenged by you, being encouraged by you, being convicted by you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. So, is there like Holy Spirit music going on in the speaker really quietly right now? Oh, it's downstairs. Okay. The Holy Spirit's down there, not up here. Sorry. 
All right, so let me catch us up on the story uh, if you haven't been with us. Um, so here's what's going on. We're in the last chunk of the book of Acts. And for the most part, kind of two-thirds of the book of Acts has followed this guy, the Apostle Paul, as he's gone on these missionary journeys around the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel around that region. But this last chunk that we're in, by the way, we're almost at the end. We're going to finish Acts out in like the next three weeks, which is kind of cool. Uh, but in this last chunk of Acts, what's happened is Paul felt a leading by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel in Rome. But first he was to go to Jerusalem and to deliver a benevolence gift that he'd been collecting for the poor in Jerusalem. So he goes there, and there a riot breaks out. He gets arrested, almost killed, and ends up in Roman custody, defending himself, trying to figure out what's going on, why was this guy arrested, there's these charges against him. And what we saw last week was that basically the whole thing was a huge mess. Where we're picking up our story today, Paul has been in prison for more than two years, two to two and a half years, stuck in kind of legal limbo where these charges have been brought against him that there really isn't any evidence for. And the Roman governor at the time was basically caught in this place where he knew there was no reason to condemn Paul to do anything to him, but he didn't want to cause trouble with the Jewish leaders who were under him. So he just kept punting it and putting it off. And Paul has been stuck. Stuck in prison two years, and what finally happens to get things moving is that this corrupt judge, Felix, gets kicked out of his position, and his replacement, a man named Festus, shows up in Judea, fresh from Rome, to take over that position. Our text picks up when Festus arrives in Judea for the first time. So I'm going to read a couple verses for us from the beginning of chapter 25. It says this. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So what we see here is, even after two years of being stuck in prison, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have not let go of their beef with Paul. They're seeing the way, the, the, the way Christianity is growing, and they want this thing to be done. They want it to be over with. They want this ringleader Paul gone. So even two years later, they're willing to plot an illegal like, assassination attempt to kill him out of Roman custody. So they, 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 this new guy comes in, he doesn't know the region yet, he doesn't know the controversies yet, he doesn't know the particulars around this case around Paul, he's just showing up, visiting Jerusalem for the first time, and they go, hey, you've got this prisoner who's in there, you know, it doesn't really make sense for him to be there, why don't you bring him down to Jerusalem, we'll do a religious trial, get this thing taken care of, and get one more guy out of your prison cells. He has no clue, right, that they're plotting an assassination attempt that will result in Paul's death and probably several of his Roman soldiers. But he knows something's not right here. He goes, no, that guy's a Roman citizen. He's in a Roman prison. You can come up there and go through a normal legal trial. Uh, not even knowing it ends up saving Paul's life. So sure enough, a few days later, they make their way from Jerusalem to Caesarea. The same leaders of the Jewish movement come, and we basically get this farcical repeat of what happened in the last chapter. Charges are brought against Paul. They go back and forth. And there's even this amazing moment where Festus is just completely confuzzled about what's going on. 
he hears them arguing and going at it back and forth, and he's just kind of like, what are we doing here? This, what is this? This isn't the kind of thing that should be in a Roman court. Remember, this guy doesn't have any real context for the Jewish region, the Jewish faith, the Jewish theological controversies yet. He's new, and so he hears this argument, and to his ears, it just sounds like two different kinds of Jews arguing about Jew stuff. And he's like, I don't get this. Why are we here? Paul sees a repeat coming and does something really interesting. Let me read this to you guys. It says, Paul said, or basically what happens to, to set this up is that the Festus goes, this doesn't make sense. Paul, do you want to go down to Jerusalem and do a religious trial down there? Because I don't understand any of this stuff. And Paul is not for that, right? He knows that these eyes aren't going to take care of him. He knows it's going to be bad news. He knows this is not going anywhere good. And so he gives us this little twist. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now this is a big deal in this day. This is a, a legal kind of setup in the Roman, the Roman structure that, by the way, at this point in history was a little bit new. It hadn't been established very long, but it is an established right Roman citizens have. Basically, Paul is appealing his case. Now this works a little differently than how we think of this. In the, in the modern Western judicial system, you give an appeal after a judgment, right? If a judgment comes down and you think it's wrong, then you appeal the case and hopefully a higher up judge will hear the case again. That's not how it works in the Roman system. In the Roman system, once the judgment is given, it's given, it's done, it's over. But if you are concerned as the person being tried that you won't get a fair trial for whatever reason, you can appeal before the decision is given, now, the way this originally worked, it was called an appeal to the people. And basically, the judge would be set out of the case, and any gentried, like, land-owning male Roman citizens within that province could come and be a part of a tribunal, and they would essentially democratically vote on your verdict, right? And this is, gets a little bit into the weeds, but there's some nuance here to how the Roman culture understood honor and authority and position, where they got to a place where they were like, well, wait a minute. If you move from a judge to the people, that's a movement down in authority. It should be a movement up in authority. So if you want to appeal, it should go to the next guy up the chain. But then once they started that process, Roman honor really got in the way of it. And like, well, you can't just appeal to the next guy up. You got to appeal to the highest authority. And they landed with this strange tradition where any Roman citizen could appeal their case directly to the emperor. That's really intense. That is a massive escalation, right? Like, you're going to court, appearing before this providential judge. I want the emperor to decide my speeding case. Uh, and you had that right. It was very wild. Take it directly to the emperor. And it includes, it, it, it basically puts into place a lot of moving pieces that are really interesting. There's some give and some take to this. The first one is, if a Roman citizen appeals to the emperor, nothing can be said officially about a judgment on the case until the emperor hears it. All discussion is essentially shut down until the emperor gets to hear the case. So, if you're guilty of sin, <laughs> it lets you put that off for a season, right? But the piece to this was, the Roman emperor had to personally 
review the case and speak to the accused and make a judgment. I don't know if you know much about the Roman Empire, but those guys got a couple things going on. They're busy. This is a really intense thing. If you appeal to Caesar, then on the Roman dime, you're going to be transported to the city of Rome and wait in line to have Caesar himself sit and try your case. This could take anywhere from three to 10 years to actually get your hearing before Caesar. And the entirety of that time, you are in legal limbo in Roman prison custody. And the level of freedom you had really depended on how nice you were to the people who had you in custody. This is a really wild thing for Paul to do. But I think this is important for us. There's a couple good reasons here for this. The first one is Paul really is fighting for his innocence here. He hasn't done anything deserving of death. He sees how badly this is going. He sees that he's stuck and he's stalled and kind of the best he can hope for in this, in this context is really to just wait it out until the Jews finally get a judge that will allow them to transport him to Jerusalem so they can kill him. And he goes, this is not gonna work. And so he really is making an appeal that will allow him to hopefully give a real defense and speak toward his innocence. But the other piece to this is way more just Paul and I absolutely love it and we have to talk about this piece. I think the main thing going on here is that Paul, for now, several years, two to three years, has been deeply convicted that the Holy Spirit was leading him to do a missionary endeavor to the city of Rome, right? You back up, when Paul was hanging out at the church at Ephesus while he was still on his third missionary journey, the Holy Spirit directed him and gave him a really clear vision, take this benevolence gift to Jerusalem and then do a missionary endeavor to the city of Rome and preach in Rome. This is three years later, Paul's going, God still called me to preach to Rome. I gotta get there. I got an idea. I'll let Rome buy my boat ticket. So he appeals to Caesar and he's getting a free ride to Rome. And not only is he getting a free ride to Rome, but Paul has built his entire legal case around his testimony. Every time Paul has appeared, he's done his best to speak as little as he can to the actual formal charges against him. This guy is a dangerous religious leader who causes riots and is a political danger and done as much as he can to go, this is really about my belief in the resurrection of the dead and the Messiah Jesus. Let me tell you all about it from the word of God. (laughs) And so Paul's sitting here going, this is not going to work. If I keep punting this thing out, I'm going to get killed in Jerusalem. I'll appeal to Caesar. I'll get a free ride to Rome. And who knows how many Roman officials I will get to preach the gospel to on the way. And eventually, because I've built my entire legal case around my testimony, I will get to share the gospel with Caesar. Sounds like a plan. And so he goes for it. Which again, I feel like is the most buckwild Paul thing to do. And I love that about this story. So he has this right. Uh, uh, Festus is really confuzzled by this. Like, why are you appealing to Caesar? This makes no sense. But it's your right, so you're going to go. But then he's left with this problem because his job as governor is to send the prisoner with his case file, with the charges, with the notes, with testimony. And he's looking at this thing going, I don't even know what the charges are. This makes no sense to me. What do I do with this? My first official act as governor can't be to send some random guy to Caesar with no real thing going on because he wants to go. 